Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 239. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes today. Just use the promo code TherapyChat when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. Took last week off from releasing an episode because I was on vacation. And though I was planning on putting something out, we actually had a direct hit of a hurricane on our vacation. And I was very lucky, unlike many people, not to have any damage or destruction at the home where I was. Well, there was one major thing that was damaged in the home. But fortunately, we didn't lose power. It was terrifying and we were sheltering in place for hours. But uh, once that was done, I said, I just want to relax and enjoy this vacation day by day, whatever happens, just make the most of it. And I'm not going to focus on putting out an episode. And on top of that, Pete, my wonderful editor who lives in the UK, had to go back into stay-at-home orders there because of, I guess, a increase in numbers of people infected with coronavirus. And so Pete didn't ask to take a break, but I figured between the two of us, it was a good time for it. So now we're back. This week, I am personally noticing how long this pandemic has been going on. We are literally coming right up to five months from the day that we went to working telehealth only in my practice. I know that all of the clinicians in my practice, as well as myself, have been pretty significantly impacted by the situation, despite none of us having been sick so far. So this week, instead of releasing a new episode, I wanted to bring back two episodes, which are among my favorites. And because they took place quite a while back, you may not have heard them. These are among some of the favorite interviews that I've done because the topic is so important important to me. And the topic is self-compassion. So the first time I interviewed Tim Ambrose Desmond, he was talking about his book, Self-Compassion in Psychotherapy. And he talked about how self-compassion helped him after living through a very difficult childhood that included times of homelessness and many challenges that he faced when he was younger. He talked about what Buddhist psychotherapy is. And for me, it was very compelling. It made me want to seek out Buddhist psychotherapy for myself. And the second interview we did was prompted by Tim coming out with a new book. And I had read an article in which he talked about how self-compassion 
has helped him in extreme difficulties he's faced in the present, which I think will resonate with many of us. And I think what made me want to re-release these two episodes together for this week is that we're all living through this pandemic and things are happening on top of it. For example, you know, you've heard me talk here about how last year I almost lost one of my parents and the grief that came from that and how that has been very painful for me. And just because the person didn't die doesn't take away the fact that it was an extremely difficult experience that continues to affect me now. So that was in August through October. And then, you know, the the fallout from that continued through the months that came after. But then the pandemic happened for us here in the U.S. It really hit in Maryland in March. And then the continuous deaths of Black Americans at the hands of police that really has come to a crescendo and strong movement that is gaining momentum. And I'm very glad to see for black people in America to be treated equally to white people and people of other ethnicities, which is all very painful to witness. And the pain of racism and systemic inequality is very painful. So you have those two things. Some people have described it as two pandemics that are going on. And, you know, then we have the things that are just happening in our normal lives, trauma we had before. And then these things like going on vacation and being hit by a hurricane. These are just things of life, painful things. And mindfulness and mindful self-compassion can help us cope because we're not, none of it is just like easy stuff that's just going to go away and be done in one day. We're going to feel these effects for a long time to come. But I, maybe this is just the optimistic part of me. I still believe that somehow we as a people, a human race will be made better through these experiences. Not sure how yet. Hopefully it's a coming together. I believe that's what we need. But although there's a lot of um, pain and chaos and dismantling these oppressive structures that have been in place for hundreds of years. So it's my hope that this listening to these two past episodes will be very timely for you and give you some hope about how you can manage the way you feel as 2020 just seems to bring one surprise after another. So without any more of me talking, let's go ahead and dive right in to listening to two interviews that I did with Tim Ambrose Desmond. Welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, my guest is Tim Desmond, LMFT, who is a student of Thich Nhat Hanh and an expert in self-compassion. Tim, welcome and thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. I'm glad to be here. I'm really glad too. I'm so excited to have you talk more about self-compassion and your work. I think it's going to be really fascinating for the audience. So can you start off just telling more about yourself and your work? Sure. I'll, I'll start from the beginning. Um, I grew up in Boston. Um, I grew up with a single alcoholic mom, uh, had a lot of, um, financial issues growing up. We were homeless for a while when I was a teenager. And, um, so by the time I got to college, I had a lot of, you know, anger and sadness and loneliness. And it was in college that I was first introduced to the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, it was actually a, a political science class. Uh, his, book Peace is Every Step was assigned in that class. And when I read it, what I saw was exactly what was missing from my life, the practices of mindfulness, of self-compassion. Uh, and what I found was the more that I put these practices and these teachings, the more that I put them into practice in my own life, just the, the, the more peacefulness and happiness and feelings of connection that, that I experienced. And so as 19-year-olds are sometimes known to do, I found something that worked for me and I just completely dove into it. And so kind of from then on, I spent as much time and continue to spend as much time as I can studying with Thich Nhat Hanh, um, in Plum Village, the uh, monastery where he lives in France, in when he tours uh, the different monasteries, Blue Cliff Monastery in, in New York or Deer Park Monastery 
in Sandy, uh, near San Diego. And a couple years ago, I left Oakland, California to with a, a couple of friends who were um, a former monk and nun that, that had lived with him. We founded a mindfulness retreat center called Morning Sun Mindfulness Center in Southern New Hampshire. And so I moved here uh, where, where, where I'm at right now to Morning Sun Mindfulness Center and, and uh, have been living here kind of building a new practice space and community for the past couple of years. Wow. So do you have your psychotherapy practice there at the Mindfulness Center? Yeah, uh, mainly here. I also, um, I, I work with people kind of all over the world. Mm. Um, so sometimes distance, sometimes people come here. Uh, it's kind of a mix. That's really interesting. I heard you speak at your workshop at Psychotherapy Network just a couple of weeks ago, as you know, and I I loved it. I was already using self-compassion in my work with clients and have wanted to learn more about it. And I've read some, but started reading your book and really goes into depth about the brain science related to self-compassion uh, and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, some people don't understand that this is scientifically based, even mm -hmm. though it's an ancient practice. Yeah. So I was I was really interested in the explanation in your book of the dual process theory. Can you talk about that and how it relates to self-compassion? Oh, sure. Well, um, so dual process theory is is uh, a theory from cognitive science. Uh, the the best place to, to learn more about it is Dan Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, basically, cognitive scientists have come to understand that there are two different kind of modes of cognitive processing that people have. There is, um, and they, they call them system one and system two. Uh, so system one is our automatic, effortless uh, processing. It's kind of um, the cognitive processing that where you can determine is, you know, one object closer than another. If, you know, if I say, you know, two plus two equals, you know, just pops right up those kinds of things that don't require any effort. And the majority of, cog of our cognitive processing is in that style. Um, system two refers to the types of cognitive processing that require some effort that require us, what we would tend to say is that actually make us think. Um, and in my book, I, I talk about um, some of the ways that this kind of understanding applies to developing uh, mindfulness and self-compassion. One of the most important ones that I'd want to mention here is that um, as we're wanting to, when we learn a new skill, whenever we learn uh, any type of new skill, um, it requires effort initially. If we're learning a new musical instrument, if we're learning how to speak a new language, when we're first beginning, it requires effort in order to be able to do it. It feels a little awkward. It feels unnatural. And it requires that sort of system to type of uh, processing. And with any skill, with enough practice, it begins to feel more automatic, begins to feel more natural, and it begins to feel, it, it begins to be something that system one learns how to do on its own. And uh, one analogy that I really like is about learning a new language. So if, uh, if, if you were wanting to learn to speak German, um, and when you go to your first German class, it's going to require a lot of kind of system to cognitive effort just to be able to remember the words and try to use them. But if you practice enough, then what you'll find is that that eventually uh, you develop some fluency and that you can speak German, uh, it, that someone can just ask you a question and you just respond. It's something that now is sort of an automatic system one process. And so it's, um, it's the same way with developing mindfulness and self-compassion in that um, when we first begin these practices, they can, uh, we can benefit from them right away, but it takes a little while. It takes a certain amount of practice before they start to feel natural, before they start to kind of become more of a part of who you are and before it starts to be sort of your automatic response to, um, difficulty or, or problems in your life. And what we learn through cognitive science is that the main mediator, if you want to, um, if you want mindfulness and self-compassion, 
to become something that feels more natural, to become something that is kind of your automatic response in moments of difficulty, the the main mediator is practice, is how much kind of time and energy have we put into practicing these skills. And um, and it's through practice that, that we end up being able to create new habits. Yeah. So understanding that the thing that is so difficult and takes up so much energy when you're first learning it can become automatic with enough practice to me is really hopeful because I know a lot of my clients, um, I, I mainly work with people who've experienced childhood trauma, usually mm-hmm. related to abuse. Yeah. And when trying to do mindfulness, sometimes they feel frustrated that they find it difficult to detach from their thoughts. Yeah. And accessing self-compassion can also feel too hard sometimes. For yeah. some people, it's easier and some it's harder. But sure. knowing that there's scientific you know, proof that if you practice, it will become easier and can eventually become automatic is really reassuring. Yeah. I mean, uh, Richard Davidson is uh, one of the most kind of highly respected neuroscientists who studies emotion. And one thing, his main talking point lately has been um, trying to communicate to people that well-being, that compassion, that gratitude, these should be understood as skills that we can develop rather than something kind of intrinsic about who we are or our personality. Um, and one of the reasons that I think that that's really important is because probably most of your clients know um, if you were talking about learning a musical instrument or learning to play uh, or, or learning to speak another language, the expectation would be, yeah, it's hard at first and then you start to get it. But for a lot of us, when we're trying to practice mindfulness or self-compassion, when we're going through that kind of initial hard stage, it's like, oh, I'm not good at this. I can't do it. You know, it's not who I am. And I think that's the, that's sort of a, a mistaken view that can make it harder to develop these qualities. Yes, I agree. I do hear people say, I can't do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I understand that there are a lot of barriers, but it's just, like I said, it's reassuring knowing that everyone can do it with practice. Yeah. So um, how do you see, you gave a, a pretty compelling description of your early years in that brief little uh, explanation about your life. Um, how do you see the difference that self-compassion has made for you? Yeah. I mean, honestly, um, I really feel like I owe just about everything good in my life to the practices that I've learned from Thich Nhat Hanh. That I, I feel like I've kind of went from someone which with a, a lot of anger and kind of self-destructiveness to someone who has a lot of peace, that, that who, who's in touch with you know, more peace and joy and connection than I would have thought possible. And, and, and really in my life, I think um, I was uh, giving a talk just yesterday in Providence, Rhode Island, and um, someone asked, what are the kind of qualities or conditions that kind of make it easier to be able to benefit from these practices? And for me, I, I, I attribute a lot of what I've been able to ben, how I've been able to benefit from these practices to one, the good fortune of being around good teachers. Um, and then two, that when I find something that is helpful for me, I really dedicate myself to it. I kind of do it wholeheartedly. And, um, so, the difference that self-compassion has made in my life, um, well, it, it's interesting. I, I've been thinking lately about self-compassion as having four different types uh, or sort of um, there being kind of four different types of self-compassion or forms that it can take. And, and the first one is that we motivate ourselves with kindness instead of criticism. And I think that might be sort of maybe one of the most basic forms of self-compassion in the sense that um, so many of us engage in self-criticism to motivate ourselves to try to do better. Mm-hmm. But researchers like Kristen Neff and, and other people who are studying um, self-compassion have demonstrated that people who motivate themselves um, compassionately 
are actually able to achieve more and particularly are able to persevere through difficulties much better than people who motivate themselves with criticism. So it's kind of like a, a client once um, once phrased it. It's like learning how to be my own cheerleader instead of being my own slave driver. Yeah. So that instead of kind of uh, and because one of the biggest dangers of motivating ourselves with criticism is that how it works is that we begin to fear failure. And that when you fear failure, um, often then you start to avoid situations where you might fail. And so many of us end up in situations where we don't want to try something new because we're afraid of our inner critic. And so being able to develop, to sort of motivate ourselves, encourage ourselves with compassion is, is one element. Uh, another important element of self-compassion is being able to um, have self-compassion in difficult moments in life. So if, um, if something unfortunate is happening in your life, whenever we're going through a hard time, one of the things that we want most is a caring, compassionate friend to be able to listen to us and, and kind of offer support. And through self-compassion, we're able to have an internal, kind of an internalized voice that can we can be present for ourselves, we can listen, and we can offer that support. But then self-compassion can go deeper than that. Self-compassion uh, practices can be used to heal, you know, pain and trauma from the past. Um, and that's one of the main focuses in my book is, is looking at how we can use um, explicit compassion training practices and incor incorporate them into um, work with trauma or work with other sort of pain and suffering from our past. And then I believe that possibly the most transformative element of self-compassion is learning how to have compassion for every part of ourselves, not just the ones that we like, but actually learning how to, to interact with or to relate to the parts of ourselves that maybe we wish would change, that we that the, the parts that we have a hard time with, to relate to those parts of ourselves with compassion as well. And so in terms of the impact of self-compassion on my life, I feel like um, self-compassion is not just about trying to improve your self-talk, that it can go deeper than that into being a real um, powerful set of skills for healing suffering from the past and for kind of um, befriending and um, learning how to, to create a more compassionate relationship with all of the different parts of ourselves instead of these conflicts that we all experience. Yeah, that's so powerful because when we have within us what we need to soothe ourselves and comfort ourselves in hard times, you know, it's not that you don't need connection with other people, but you, you can, you don't have to look outside of yourself to find relief when you're suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And, and being able to develop that internal source of compassionate presence. Um, I mean, in some ways, we, when we think about psychotherapy, we think about the client bringing their distress and the therapist. One of the main th things that the therapist brings is their compassionate presence. And so when we can develop an internal source of compassionate presence, it's it can be you know, incredibly supportive and transformative. Yeah, that is very healing. So one of the things I love about your book, and um, I haven't finished it, but um, you have practical techniques for therapists to use in your book, Self-Compassion and Psychotherapy, mm -hmm. um, with basically transcripts of what I guess you've done in sessions and what you would say, what the client would say and how it would work. I think that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, what, what I wanted to make sure that, that, uh, in putting in putting all of these vignettes of so my yeah my book is mainly structured around vignettes because i feel like um in any of these practices that generally showing is better than telling and that so much of my own journey has been um, taking what I've learned from Thich Nhat Hanh and been able to apply in my own life and developing ways to share that with others, to share that with my clients and to be able to guide people through practices the way that I would practice myself. And you need different forms as a therapist than in a retreat center because we don't have our clients for, you know, 12 hours a day for 10 days in a row, you know, and most of our clients don't have kind of the patience 
or or the perseverance necessarily to stick with a practice for months and months until they start to, you know, until it starts to really kind of click and make sense to them in the way that so many meditation students do. Mm. So one of the things that I developed was um, what I call dialogue-based mindfulness, which is basically guiding people through these sorts of practices, mindfulness and self-compassion practices, while getting verbal feedback from the client about their experience, because I find that it's um, so much easier to guide somebody into a practice in a way that really works for them, in a way that that, that actually clicks for them, when I can, when I know uh, what obstacles are coming up for them, or or, or when they when they're sharing with me what their experience is rather than sort of the more traditional way of doing these guided practices where the the client is silent until the end and then they just kind of give feedback mm. um so i've i've so i've developed a few kind of skills that i write about in self compassion and psychotherapy that I believe make it a lot easier to for clients to benefit from these types of practices. And then I um, describe, you know, using lots of different clinical examples, what it actually looks like when you're uh, working with clients. I think that's really helpful. And I'm pretty eager to get to that part of the book so I can integrate that myself into my practice because I do the meditations and get the feedback at the end, like you said, but not that you know, questioning process as it's happening. Um, so I think that's really helpful. Um, what do you think about the importance of the therapists working on developing their own self-compassion when they use self-compassion practices with clients? Do you feel yeah. like it's necessary or not? Well, uh, <laughs> necessary is, uh, um, wouldn't necessarily, that, that wouldn't be how I'd frame it because, necessary. Um, there are plenty of people who use mindfulness and self-compassion with their clients and they don't have a formal practice in their own lives and their clients do benefit. But what I would kind of suggest and encourage for therapists is basically to say that there are two really important benefits that we can experience um, using these practices in our own lives. And the first one is that it makes it easier to find compassion for our own clients, especially the difficult ones. Mm. Uh, there's a, a client that I write about in the book. One of my first clients uh, when I was still in my practicum was a young woman who was, she said she was dating a really nice guy. Um, he was nice to her and funny and had a good job. And that she was cheating on him with an artist who was addicted to crack who kept stealing money from her. Mm. And what I noticed, I was like, my internal response was just like, stop it. Like, just don't do that. Yeah. And um, but at this point, I had been studying meditation for several years and was aware that I wasn't feeling compassion for her in that moment. And for me, that was a real red flag. So I bit my lip and got through the session the best I could. But then when I went home, I sat down on my little cushion and I pictured this client and I felt all of the tension and kind of agitation come up in my body. And I'm sure everyone who's listening to this now, I'm sure that you have at least one client that if you pictured them right now, you'd notice some tension kind of come up in your body. And so I just gave myself some time and space to feel that uh, tension, that agitation, just whatever came up in my body without trying to change it, to send myself compassion and saying, you know, it's it's okay for you to feel this. And as the thoughts started coming up, um, you know, I just wish people wouldn't act like this. I wish people wouldn't do this. I sent myself compassion and said, you know, it's all right for you to wish that. Of course you wish that. And as I settled and began to feel more peaceful, I recognized that in some ways she was reminding me of some people from my own life who had you know made bad choices and caused a lot of suffering for themselves and others and so I went back to different moments in my own life and sent myself compassion there mm. and after practicing like this for a while it was probably about 90 minutes that eventually I was feeling really peaceful and really calm and when I visualized my client again, I saw her completely differently. I saw how out of control she felt. And I saw that she didn't like the choices that she was making. And that's why she came into therapy. And for whatever reason, I couldn't see that so clearly because I needed to send myself compassion first. So that being I was able to kind of open my heart to this person in a, um, a, a fuller way after practicing self-compassion for myself. And the other thing that the other benefit that we gain is 
more confidence and kind of comfort with these practices. Thich Nhat Hanh has given a couple of retreats for psychotherapists um, in the past. And one of the things that he'll say is, your own suffering is your best teacher. And I believe that that's really true, that as a therapist, we all, I mean, as therapists, we all experience anxiety, we all experience frustration and anger, and we all, you know, we all know what it's like to feel hopeless sometimes. And if we can learn to bring acceptance and compassion to ourselves in those moments, to kind of befriend ourselves in those moments, and really to embrace those feelings, you know, like you're holding a crying baby, then what we find is um, working with clients when our clients bring those same issues, same those same experiences, we just feel a lot more comfortable and a lot more confident in, you know, that it's possible to, to move through these things, that we don't feel kind of this our own anxiety that we need to make these, um, this distress go away, that we know that we can stay present with it and that it's just part of life. Yeah, that's very powerful. And I must say, um, I know Thich Nhat Hanh has had a stroke and I don't know if he's still doing this, but if they still offer retreats for psychotherapists, I think that's something that I know I would want to know more about. Do you know how to find information about that? Yeah. So, um, he, he suffered a stroke about a year and a half ago. Um, he was in a coma for several months. He was actually in, uh, um, rehabbing in a hospital for many months. And now he's back home in Plum Village in France. But, um, and he's getting around. He can, he can move around a little bit. He's, he's happy, but he's not speaking. Mm. Um, so he, it, it, it's looking like he probably won't be leading more retreats. Okay. Um, but retreats for, for therapists, I mean, I, I think that, um, yeah, that there are, there are lots of wonderful, uh, Dharma teachers out there, um, who are offering retreats for therapists and at, um, Morning Sun Mindfulness Center, you know, we, we offer, uh, retreats for the, for the public, um, here as well. So if, if people are looking to, to sort of go on a retreat, then I feel like that's one of the best ways to, especially when you're beginning to make these practices kind of part of your life. I, I think about meditation retreats kind of similar to, um, having an immersion experience when you're learning a language. Yeah. That, um, you have this sort of an immersion into the practice and that in a short time, you notice a lot of benefits. And then when you go back to your sort of practice on your own in, in your life, in your daily life, it just feels a little easier. It feels a little more natural. Um, if you've been able to have, you know, even a day, but if, if possible, a few days in, in some kind of a retreat environment. Will you share the website for Morning Sun Retreat Center? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, I guess I'll share two things. So morningsuncommunity.org is the, uh, the um, website for uh, our mindfulness center. And then the other thing that, that I'll mention for people who... Um, uh, aren't, you know, going to travel up to New Hampshire. Um, I, I just launched, um, a, a 12 week online course in psychotherapy, in, um, in self-compassion. That's for a general public. Um, and if you go to timdesmond.net, um, you can find that course there. So, um, at timdesmond.net, there's a, a, a 12 week online course called the foundations of self-compassion that people can explore as well. There's a seven day free trial. So you can kind of test it out and see if it, it speaks to you. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about it. And that's for the general public, including therapists, right? In, including therapists. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> great. Your book, your clinical course sounds wonderful. Your book is really great. Um, I also noticed it's great that you have a free trial, but I noticed that your course is priced very affordably relative well, to what yeah. a lot of things like that would be. So yeah. that's exciting. I'm definitely going to be doing the trial and check it out. Great. Well, I'm mindful of your time. So um, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I thought this was a really interesting talk. And I think that our listeners are going to want to find out a lot more about everything you're doing. Well, thank you, Laura. And it was uh, really great to talk with you too. Let's just pause for a moment so I can give you a little bit more information about why I love therapy notes. I switched to therapy notes a few years ago. I'd say it's about three years now, I believe. And 
I have never regretted it. I was very happy with the EHR I used before, but Therapy Notes is more intuitive. I love the interface. The customer service is fantastic. And I love how I can get my notes done quickly because I can customize the template that I use for my notes and there are opportunities to put check marks rather than having to write out the intervention used. So I have cut my time spent writing notes way down, which is wonderful because I like to focus on seeing clients. I know documentation is an important part of our work, but it can also be time consuming. And that is why I love using therapy notes. If you are considering switching EHRs or you're looking for one to use in your practice, give Therapy Notes a try. You can get two free months by using the code TherapyChat. Now let's get back to our interview. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I'm very excited to have a returning guest, someone who teaches and speaks and practices in self-compassion, a subject that I'm very passionate about. So today, my returning guest is Tim Desmond. Tim, thank you so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. Really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy too that you could come back and you have a new book out, which caught my attention and made me want to ask you to come back. You're the author of the new book, The Self-Compassion Skills Workbook, and the previous book that I love, Self-Compassion and Psychotherapy, Mindfulness-Based Practices for Healing and Transformation. So, Tim, can you just tell our audience more about yourself and the work you do? Sure. Really broadly speaking, I guess, like a lot of people, like probably a lot of your listeners, I'm somebody who really wishes that we lived in a better world, like in the sense of whatever I'm doing, whether it's psychotherapy or activism or teaching meditation, so much of what I'm doing comes from this feeling of like, it's not, you know, um, not wanting suffering for myself, not wanting suffering for other people, just like the kind of sense of like, I'm wanting the world to be a better place. And that's been a big part of my life. I mean, we we all get into this work because we're looking for something, right? And so that's been a big part of my life since I was young. I, I mentioned to you before when I was on last time, I had a pretty hard time growing up. I grew up in Boston with a single alcoholic mother. We were always struggling financially and we were homeless for a little while. And basically, I just remember like this desire for the world to be a better place is not doesn't really it's not really altruistic in any sense that it comes from this this desire that goes back as far as I can remember of just wishing people weren't so mean, wishing that I lived in a better world, wish, wishing sort of people were nicer to me and people like me and really identifying with people who are suffering a lot and who are kind of victims of oppression and, and in, in every way. And whatever I'm doing, whether it's you know teaching mindfulness to activists or teaching mindfulness to therapists, it comes from this feeling of just wanting the world to be better. The funny thing about that motivation is that it leads you pretty quickly into kind of a paradox, which is sort of like the paradox of like if, if somebody says like, relax or I'll kill you, right? It, like w- what happens is if I'm, if I'm feeling like, you know, I want this world to be a better place. I want my life to be better. I want to be a better person. As soon as we identify this problem that we want to change, what we do kind of inevitably is we turn that problem into our enemy. And so whether it's like I want, whether I'm trying to change something in society or whether I'm trying to change, you know, critical or judgmental thoughts in me, as soon as I turn, I mean, let's say that kind of self-critical voice in me, as soon as I turn it into an enemy, well, we all know the best way to treat an enemy is to hate them and kill them, right? So as soon as we turn this, any part of me or any part of the world into an enemy, what, what happens is that 
we deepen the level of conflict and violence and just just that kind of radical non-acceptance of the world or of my life is really the seed of so many of these problems that we want to change is really the seed of that judgmental thinking or that self-criticism as soon as we say that self-criticism isn't okay right that that self-critical voice in me is bad and i really want it to go away and that's my goal that's my new year's resolution i i want to stop being self-critical we turn that part of ourselves into an enemy and then everything that we do kind of deepens that divide and so what's led me to so this is really what's led me to self-compassion i've been a student of tiknat han the um Vietnamese Buddhist monk and and teacher for a long time and the thing that I really keep learning from him and keep being challenged by is every I I mean I'm I'm the type of person that I I keep having I have this tendency to look for what I want to change in myself look for what I want to change in the world and as soon as I as soon as I name it it's sort of like okay you know it's like that whatever that thing is is the problem is the enemy and what I keep learning from Tiknahan is that just that way of thinking perpetuates a lot of the suffering that I that I'm hoping to overcome and so instead what's led me to to self-compassion to sort of the the path of self-compassion is learning that instead of viewing these things as a problem that needs to be vanquished or whatever an enemy recognizing that these are manifestations of suffering and the way to respond to suffering is with care and compassion is with embracing and wanting to help and that's just kind of a constantly you know as much as i teach this and as much as i practice it it's constantly a challenge that you know that this uh i'll i'll find something in myself or and um and i keep going back to the sense of like okay that's the problem that's what i need to get rid of and i keep needing to be reminded over and over again of no that's that is suffering in you and what suffering needs is care and compassion so i don't know if i answered your question uh that's that, <laughs> yeah. that's the way that i that, that's the way that i think about my work is is just kind of from that perspective yeah i think that what you said is a great answer to my question better than probably what i directly asked because i think you know it's it's so hard to keep in mind that feeling better doesn't mean we have to to eliminate the emotions that we don't like feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And yet it's like, that's, I mean, I don't know about you, but that's immediately where my mind goes. Like as soon as I, as soon as I recognize that there's, as soon as I recognize that there's something about my experience that I don't like, there's something that's not working for me, then immediately it's just sort of like, oh, that's the problem. That's the thing to, that I want to overcome. And it always takes this like extra step of, it's not the problem. It's it's a part of you that needs some love and, and compassion. Yeah. And I think in our culture, in our world, I guess, it really seems yeah. that when we have things we don't like about ourselves, we want to change them and make them not be there. So yeah. to give ourselves compassion, love and care for to give those parts love, love, care, compassion is pretty counterintuitive. Yeah. Well, lately I've been thinking about my mind a lot as kind of like a a friend who likes to give a lot of advice and opinions that are mainly unsolicited. Like if, if you imagine that you had a friend that was just like literally that just always was hanging out with you and always was giving you advice and opinions, that's how I relate to my mind. And sometimes those opinions are helpful. So the, the thing that's really clear to me is this really opinionated friend loves me and is trying to help. But and sometimes their advice is good. A lot of times it's terrible, but they're not my enemy. Right. Just because they won't shut up, they won't shut up because because they care about me and they're giving me their best advice. And so, so, and with an, with, with a friend like that, and this is definitely true for my mind. Sometimes my mind can sort of give me an opinion or give me some advice and I can just say, no, thanks. And my, and my mind will just be like, okay, you know, I can, I can just be like, you know, let it go, come back. That's not necessarily true. 
But a lot of the time, my mind will give me some kind of an, of an opinion or some advice, and I'll say, no, thanks. And it'll say, no, you don't understand. This is really important. I need you to, like, you really have to agree with me or you really have to do this. And that's the time that I have to remember that, that just like a friend who's doing that, if I empathize with them and I say, like, I see that you're trying to help and I appreciate you. And I see that that really seems true for you right now. And I, and I just want, I, and I, I get that you're really trying to help me. Then my friend can kind of calm down a little. If I try to argue with them or if I try to just ignore them, you know, it, it doesn't make the situation better. It doesn't lead louder. to, they get louder. You know, there's just like, it, it certainly doesn't lead to the harmony that I'm looking for or the sense of sort of like peacefulness and spaciousness that I'm looking for. And so, so, you know, my my really opinionated friend is, you know will just sort of point at something and be like look that's the problem that's the that's the thing that's ruining your life and i need to rather than just be like yeah you're right i need to, to remember to kind of say okay i t- i can tell you really want me to you want to help you want you want me to have more peace and spaciousness and well-being in my life and that's why you're trying to do this you really you you're really trying to look out for me and um and thank you for that and i see that that's your opinion right now, but I'm going to, I want to do a little more inquiry before I decide whether to agree with you or not. It's definitely easier to do that than to do the thing that we usually do, which is just sort of argue. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the the hard part is even seeing your mind as that opinionated friend rather than just reacting to what your mind says is the problem, you know, without even that pause. Yeah, well, to do that is really hard. I mean, it's it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of training. The, the more that I think about mindfulness and, and self-compassion, the more I like to think about them as training your mind. Like when you bring a puppy home, the puppy is untrained. And if you don't train that puppy, they're going to ruin your carpet. And an untrained mind is going to ruin a lot more than your carpet. Like if, if we if we don't train our minds to be able to, to not just run wild with worries and judgments and, and all the places that they go, if we don't train them then yeah they're 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 just you know pretty out of control but like a puppy if we have a lot of patience and gentleness and consistency and positive feedback, then it's possible to train our minds. And yeah, it's really the product of that training where you start to see the fruits of the practice. It's that um, practicing over and over and over again to the point that in the really hard moments of life, you can remember to practice. And that doesn't happen naturally. Like that's when life is really hard. That's the last time that most of us remember to come back to the present moment, to come back to our bodies, to be kind to ourselves. And what what it takes is training ourselves in those qualities over and over and over again, in the same way that you'd sort of train yourself in any kind of skill like self-defense. If you want to learn self-defense, you train yourself, you kind of drill yourself over and over and over again to the point that it starts to feel automatic. And and it's really only then that you can use it when you need it. Right. Because in that situation, if it's a self-defense thing, your your automatic response would be, you know, like fight or flight or whatever. So you have to have this be as much of an automatic response as that. There's a, um, a Greek um, kind of military poet that wrote a, a line that I always think about when talking about training your mind and the line is we don't rise to the level of our aspirations we fall to the level of our training and what that means is that in a moment of crisis that's that's not the time that we think of something new in a moment of crisis that is you know all we have access to, and cognitive science has really demonstrated this pretty clearly, all we have access to is what we've trained ourselves in enough that our automatic pilot consciousness can do it. That if we can do it with no conscious control, but just but just on automatic pilot, only then do we have access to it in a moment of crisis. It's amazing if we can train ourselves in therapy. When I'm working with clients, one of the things that I really try to help people to do is to, to 
use their own symptoms, to use their own distress as a bell of mindfulness. In um, If you go to Plum Village where Thich Nhat Hanh lives, there's all these bells that you'll hear. And every time there's a bell, everybody stops and takes three breaths. So the people, you know, anybody who's walking will stop or conversations will stop and People who are chopping vegetables will stop. Um, and it's not like stopping like freeze tag. Like like the like hearing the, Yeah, no. Hearing the bell, it's like stopping like what's going on? Why am I here? What do I need to be happy right now? And connecting with why am I like asking the question, why am I doing what I'm doing right now? Like really coming back to the to sort of um to what's alive in you. And actually, that's probably one of the most dangerous, what in Buddhism we call near enemies of mindfulness. One of the most dangerous, maybe we could say like imposters of mindfulness is the kind of mindfulness that turns you into a mindfulness zombie. The kind of mindfulness that actually makes you a little bit more dead or a little bit like it's sort of like you're just going through the motions. So you're smiling and slowing down, but you're doing it by actually kind of dissociating from what's really alive in you. And that is not the practice that Thich Nhat Hanh teaches. The, the practice of mindfulness is really about becoming more in touch with life, becoming more in touch with what's alive in you. And so this, this kind of a bell, hearing this bell and stopping is not about stopping and sort of dissociating from what you were just doing. It's, it's a bell of stopping and saying, wait, what's, what's really alive right now? And so I want to teach clients that when you notice that anxiety start building up in your chest, when you notice yourself kind of having these, you know, um, ruminative thoughts, that's a bell to stop and come back to this moment and get in touch with what's really alive in you right now. And so, yeah, I think that's um, one of the biggest problems with the way that mindfulness is sometimes taught is that it, it can be interpreted as something that is the opposite of what it's supposed to be in the sense that it's it's something that sort of deadens you a little bit. But yeah, but really mindfulness is transformative. Mindfulness is beautiful. Mindfulness is worth practicing when it's something that makes you more alive, makes you more like more deeply in touch with life. Wow. That's I'm going to have to think about that one a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, and I think it relates to this, but feel free to yeah. Yeah. me is sure. an article that you recently published in Mindful Full Magazine or Mindful.org. And you described a situation where you were feeling a lot of intense emotion and you were able to use mindfulness not to escape from the situation, but to bring bring you more into the present moment and into what was actually happening then. Yeah. Is that kind yeah. of what you mean? Or is that, that, that Yeah, that, that's definitely what I mean. Um, and just to for, for your listeners, I wrote an article recently about something that I've been going through in my life for the past few years in in 2015, um, just after our son turned two, my wife was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And in the past couple years since that diagnosis, We've been through multiple surgeries and chemotherapy and recurrences and more surgeries and more chemotherapy. And, and we're continuing, you know, we're, we're in the middle of that journey right now. Actually, as we record this, um, we have uh, new scans and then chemotherapy, I think, three days from now. And what I was writing about was an experience that I had, you know, maybe our last rounds of scans so one of the things that's been really hardest for me in this whole journey has been um, when my wife has a set of scans, we'll, she'll go through and have the scans done. And then either later that day or more, much more often the next day, we meet with our doctor and hear the results. And right now, you know, we're in a place where any set of scans could be news that's basically our lives are going to be radically changed from this point forward. And so when we uh, we'll, we'll sit in the waiting room and then we'll go into the doctor's office and then sitting in the doctor's office, it seems like we're always just sitting there for at least like 20 minutes, 30 minutes waiting for the doctor to come and there'll be people walking up and down the ha the hallway and every set of footsteps that we hear it's like is that the doctor are we going to hear now and that's one of the hardest times for me and my wife and i always meditate during that time 
And the story that I told was about a last set of scans we went through. We were sitting and meditating together in the doctor's office, waiting for the doctor to come in. And I was aware of this really intense block of aversion in me. This incredibly strong feeling of just no, just I don't want this. I don't want, I don't want reality to be what it is right now. Like just kind of this is unacceptable. And I think we can all relate to feeling that in different contexts. And Luckily, because of my practice, I was able to say to myself, okay, stay with this feeling, come back to your body. And coming back to the sensations in my body and just allowing that feeling to be there without trying to change it at all, it calmed enough that I was able to 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 see into it, you know, able to sort of ask the question, okay, so what is it about this moment that is so painful? And kind of obvious answer came up, which is, I don't want to lose my wife. And I, again, just slowed down, sat with that reality, that, that incredibly strong, what we sometimes call mental formation, thought in me, and just allowed myself to sit with it rather than reacting to it. I don't want to lose her. I just kind of let myself say that and feel it. I don't want to lose her. I don't want to lose her. And as I was saying that, I'm... I look down and I'm seeing I'm holding her hand right now. There she is. She's alive right now. And what I saw in that moment is that all of that suffering in me, the root of it was the awareness of how precious her life is to me. And and there she is alive right next to me right now. And then it just seemed so ludicrous that I would be doing anything other than celebrating the fact that we're together. It just seemed ridiculous. Here we are. Like, why would I be? Why is this a moment of grieving? This is a moment that that she is alive now here together. And that's that's the freedom that comes from when we can be in touch with the present moment, you know, when we can actually see what's here in front of us. And and the insight that that came for me in that experience was that I've heard Thich Nhat Hanh say so many times that our suffering and our joy are not separate. They're made out of the same stuff. But this was definitely like the deepest and clearest that I've experienced that, which is the root of all of that pain that I was feeling. It's like it was made, the energy that it was made out of is my wife is so precious to me. And just that cherishing that connection looked at from one perspective creates this tremendous suffering, but then the the very same energy can can give rise to this experience of of like joy and celebration and gratitude more than anything. And so one of the main metaphors that Thich Nhat Hanh uses when he talks about self-compassion and the and and the transformation of suffering and healing is turning compost uh, turning garbage into compost and compost into flowers, which is basically like life gives you garbage, but you've learned how to turn garbage into compost and compost into flowers. And the thing that I love about that analogy is that it's not that life gives you garbage and you know how to just not think about the garbage too much or how to get rid of the garbage, but no, you know how to turn that same garbage into something beautiful. That that is actually the, that that's actually actually a, a possibility with mindfulness and compassion practices. And th- this is definitely uh, that, that experience that I wrote about is definitely a, a really clear experience for me of, of what that means. So just that, it, that um, the suffering itself is not separate from gratitude. Thank you for sharing that beautiful yeah. story. And, and I mean, I was really moved by it. And I know that it probably has already helped many people and, and hopefully people who are listening who may be dealing with some kind of situation that seems impossible can take away a little hope out of that too, because I yeah. thought that was very helpful. Thanks. So I want to ask you about the two books, the Self-Compassion and Psychotherapy and the Self-Compassion Skills Workbook. Are they, are they in Tended to be used together? Do they complement one another or are they fully separate? I think they can be used together. I think self-compassion and psychotherapy is really a book for primarily for therapists or people who are wanting to go pretty deep into thinking about the relationship between suffering, compassion, and healing. And so what I, what I tried to do there is offer everything that I've come to believe and experience about 
how compassion can be used to heal suffering in our personal practice and, in, and especially in psychotherapy. The, the workbook is intended for everybody. Um, the workbook can be used by therapists with their clients, can be used by uh, clients on their own. It's the, um, the format of the workbook is based on some research by Richie Davidson, where he's been looking for for a while sort of what is the minimum dose people ask him all the time well what is the minimum dose of meditation training that is going to lead to real changes and after a lot of experiments he's come to believe that 30 minutes a day for two weeks of compassion training leads to measurable changes in both behavior and brain physiology. So if we can do 30 minutes a day for two weeks, that's generally would be considered sort of like the, the minimum dose where we should, where we can expect behavioral and physiological changes. So I set up the workbook as guided, a way of guiding someone's practice, sort of a, a you know, 30 minutes a day for two weeks kind of practice. And the way that the workbook is set up is different practices are helpful for, for different people. And I, I I've seen a lot of attempts by meditation teachers to to try to individualize meditation practices for people because we're aware that it's it's really true like some people respond to this kind of practice some people respond to that kind of practice for some people on a day-to-day -day basis you know different things are going to feel helpful but generally when people do that it's been these kinds of practices if you're depressed these kinds of practices for perfectionism these kinds of practices for anxiety and that's certainly not how Thich Han teaches. And that really hasn't been my experience of what's most effective for people. My experience of what's most effective for people is you sort of start with a body scan and depending on what comes up, it might be this practice or that practice. And so I divided the core self-compassion practices into eight core practices that have like a, a few variants of each, divided them into eight core practices and created what I call the map to self-compassion, which is basically a flow chart. So you begin by doing a body scan. And then depending on what comes up in your body scan, you look at this kind of flow chart and it says, you know, um, in, the in your first body scan, it says, do you notice any distress or any suffering that comes up? Yes or no. The suffering or distress that's coming up, do you find, is it overwhelmingly strong or can you tolerate it? Yes or no. And depending on your answers to those questions, it will point you at different practices and kind of move you from one practice to the next, depending on what comes up for you in that particular session of, of practicing. And probably the thing that I'm most proud of, uh, the thing that I was hoping the most, I got a, uh, a review on uh, Amazon.com of someone who is using the workbook as kind of a um, to, uh, as sort of like a an amendment or or um, using the workbook as a complementary treatment in working with complex trauma. Like she was actually able to to use this workbook to use the practices that were here and be able to practice self-compassion with complex trauma, being supervised by a therapist, but also on her own. And that was really what I was hoping for because a lot of a lot of self-help tools, especially sort of mindfulness-based self-help tools, the way that they're the, the way that they're presented, they're, they don't have sort of the adequate depth, a lot of them, for use with really deep issues with, you know, with complex trauma and dissociation. And what I was really hoping with this workbook is to create something that would be usable for people, even with really intense suffering. And um, the feedback that I'm getting is that it actually does work. So you can you can check it out either through WW Norton, the publisher, or or on Amazon. And I think um, on WW Norton, they'll let you kind of download a, a free exercise um, and kind of take a look at it. 
but but yeah i i'm i'm really happy with how it's come out yeah it's um i love the map and you know what you said about complex trauma is music to my ears because i was looking at the map and i was saying oh you know i know some clients who have did or some very severe yeah. dissociation who yeah this kind of map is like and it's like it does look like a flow chart and there's a little yeah. tear out small version of it in the book which i'm looking at right now it's it's perfect because I mean, I think it even taps into that resource of the cognition to be able to say, yeah, oh, here, what do I do next? What do I do next? And yeah, brings think, you back into the room. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, I'm very eager to use this with some of my clients who, you know, it may just be a little too, too broad to just try practicing self-compassion without some kind of guideline. Yeah. Yeah. If this happens and what to do if that happens. So I, I really love this. Yeah. And then the, with the workbook, I also wrote recorded all of the guided practices and if, if um, and so when you buy the workbook there's a, a link that comes with it um, where you can either stream or download all of the practices so it's it kind of a, a similar you can rather than having to read them you can also listen to them that's great I gotta find that link in there because um, I saw some little icons of um, like yeah. an audio thing and I was like oh are these recorded obviously I haven't had a chance to read the whole book because I just got it yeah but yeah yeah wonderful well I think this is a, an amazing resource and I'm sure it's going to be helping so so many people I know I'll be using it with my clients and recommending people to order it so I know we're getting short on time and I don't want to hold you up but do you have a minute just to tell people about where to find all the things you're doing because I know you have more than books sure yeah yeah so uh, my books uh, you can find my books anywhere that books are sold on my website, timdesmond.net, you can find a, uh, an online uh, video training in self-compassion. Um, you can, it's uh, self-paced. It, there's 12 weeks of content, but you can actually do it, you know, take as, as long or short as you want. And there's a free trial. So if you go to timdesmond.net and look for the, um, the online video training, people can, can find that. I have some advanced trainings for therapists in the Boston area coming up. So if, again, if you go to timdesmond.net, you can see uh, we'll be in Cambridge, Newton, and Salem, Massachusetts, um, September, I believe it's 18th, 19th, and 20th. And then uh, and we still have openings and you can sign up online. And yeah, that's, that's uh, and, and, you know, and any other, I'll be in the Denver area in, I think, November. And you can, again, find that on my website, timdesmond.net. Right. And you also have a community that you co-founded, right? Yeah. So uh, this week, we're actually having uh, um, our all-ages kind of family retreat at Morning Sun Mindfulness center. So the website there is morningsuncommunity.org. And um, it's a retreat center and co-housing community in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. And so if you're interested in, uh, in practicing or attending our retreats or just want to learn more about our community, you can find it at morningsuncommunity.org. It's uh, a really wonderful place in southwestern New Hampshire, uh, near Keene, New Hampshire, uh, right outside of Antioch University. Awesome. Well, I will put a link to both websites in the show notes in case anybody who's listening didn't get a chance to jot them down. And I just want to thank you so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. I just loved this conversation and I'm really grateful for the work you're doing. Well, thanks. It was great to, great to talk with you. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. There are many ways to keep your practice organized, but Therapy Notes is the best. Their easy-to-use, secure platform lets you not only do your billing, scheduling, and progress notes, but also create a client portal to share documents and request signatures. Plus, they offer amazing unlimited phone support, so when you have a question, you can get help fast. To get started with the practice management software trusted by over 60,000 professionals, go to therapynotes.com and start a free trial today. If you enter promo code Therapy Chat, they will give you two months to try it out for free. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. 
With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you.